0: Can we talk? No, I mean really talk. Not in the usual typing, texting, posting, commenting sort of way we're so used to. Where discussions become debates. And somehow, every opinion is wrong. I'm talking about truly thoughtful, considerate, healthy communication. Because I have questions. And I'm convinced there are answers. Sure. It may get uncomfortable or awkward, heated or hot, but I'm not willing to let fear, insecurity, anger or pain get in the way of fulfillment, insight, answers and peace. I need to know, when it comes to bigotry, exclusivity and anxiety, misogyny, sexual sanctity and agony, what does God demand? What does the Bible command? Where do we stand? you ready to talk?
1: When Emil Capon was a young man growing up in Kansas, he felt the call to go into ministry. He finished high school and then he went through the necessary schooling to become an ordained Catholic priest. His title became Father Emil Capon. Well, World War II was raging at that time, and he found himself drafted into the military and serving as a chaplain. The title added a few other things to it, U.S. Army Captain, Chaplain, Father Emil Capon. Well, Chaplain Capon served in the Burmese campaign and survived World War II, and at the end of World War II, he was discharged. He went about his civilian duties as a Catholic priest. But then in June of 1950, his world would be flipped on its head. It was on June 25, 1950, when the North Korean military crossed the 38th parallel and attacked South Korea. The U.S. was soon involved with the war, as was China and Russia to some extent. Chaplain Kapan was brought back into the military. Now, when he gave a vow as a Catholic priest, he said that he wanted to be an emulation to Jesus in all people, or to all people. Little did he know that his vow would be pushed to the test early In the Korean conflict, he was assigned to an infantry unit that was in close combat, hand to hand combat against the Chinese. And on a really bad day in 1950, his unit was overrun by the Chinese and surrounded. They had to surrender. And on that day, he truly had to start showing the love of Jesus in a different way. On that day, uh, th- th- a Chinese soldier was ready to execute an American soldier who'd broken his leg. They were doing an 80-mile death march to Pyoktung prison camp. And Chaplain Capon stood in front of the muzzle of the weapon, picked up the American soldier and carried him those 80 miles. Once they got to Pyoktung he'd do things such as trade his watch with a, a North Korean prison guard for a blanket because it was the most brutal Winter in the history of the Korean Peninsula. He'd take that blanket then and he'd make gloves and socks for his men in his prison cell. He'd pick the lice off of his men and clean up their human excrement because their hands were so frostbitten or so broken because of the, the torture that was going on in Pyeoktung. He'd also give them his food, and over time, giving them the, their, his food paid a price, and he got pneumonia, and he died Alone in a prison cell in Pyoktong prison camp. Where was God in all that? Was God just sitting on his hands? If God is so good, why, didn't, why did God allow chaplain Father Emil Capon, one of his anointed who had no blood on his hands, why did he allow him to go through that? And if God is so powerful, why didn't he sweep down and open up the doors of the prison camp to get these these soldiers out of this horrific situation? How can a good God allow suffering? Such is a question we're gonna try to answer today in this series called Conversations. This is week six, and it's in this series in which we're hitting some tough topics. And today's topic is one that is a tough topic. And our hope is, My hope is is that I'll be able to give you some information that you can have some conversations with not only your Christ-following friends, but people of all walks of faith, because suffering is universal, and we all are going to face suffering. And I think all of us have had that question at one time or another. One of my favorite movies is a movie, Gladiator, and in this movie, Russell Crowe plays General Maximus. He's this incredible uh, military commander, and before they go into combat, General Maximus says to his men, what you do in life echoes into eternity. And I think that same thing holds true with suffering. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. What you do in suffering echoes into eternity. What you do in suffering, the way you suffer, has both an earthly impact as well as a heavenly impact. God's got a lot to say about that. That's what we're talking about today. Now, here's the deal. A couple things about today. I'm not going to give you tools to deal with suffering. That's for another sermon and another time. I also want to acknowledge that there are many of you here Many of you at, in Skagit, watching us in Skagit, some of you in Boca Raton, and those of you watching us online who have been through horrific suffering. I know a lot of your stories, but I don't know most of your stories, and I want to just be up front and say that I don't mean to belittle the suffering you've gone through or are going through. My heart breaks for you, and I'm sorry about that. But we're going to talk some tough truths today. I've got four sources that I'm using. Obviously, and always, the first source is the Bible. But in your link, I've listed out three other sources that I'm going to be running back and forth to uh, Tim Keller, Greg Boyd, and Philip Yancey. They're in your link. And if you're watching us online and you want to get those sources, just send us an email and we'll shoot that to you. So today, we're hanging out in two main chunk, chunks of scripture Job chapter 1. And 1 Peter chapter 4. So turn to Job chapter 1, and let me set the scene for what's going on as we kick off our conversation today. Job is most likely the oldest book in the Bible. It's the story of a guy named Job who's rich. He's rich in fame, fortune, and also faith. It's the story of a man who faces the abyss in a universe that doesn't make sense, a universe that's a lot like ours. It's the story of a man who has the very worst happened to him, the very best. It's a story about suffering, and it's a story about faith. But what I'll argue today is that suffering and faith walk down the same road, arm in arm, and I really think the story of Job is more of a story about faith than suffering. In the story of Job, Job's done nothing wrong, and he's going to suffer, and he's not suffering for a punishment's sake. He's suffering for a bigger cause, a cosmic cause. So let's kick this off. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and he stays away from evil. So I said there, as I said, there's more to this story than just a good guy going through some tough times. There's a cosmic piece to this story. God is in a cosmic battle with Satan and that, that battle's gonna continue until Christ returns a second time. We're gonna be talking a lot about that today. But this cosmic, this cosmic showdown between God and Satan, God handpicks Job to step into the ring and fight. And Job didn't ask for it. And to me, to us, but to me I'm looking at this going, this is unfair. He never asked to step in the ring and to fight. But he does. Have you ever considered that the suffering you go through or have been through is part of a cosmic battle, part of something bigger than you can't see? Such is the case for Job. He's doing what's right Yet look what's, what happens, verses 9 through 12. Satan replied to the Lord, yeah, but Job has good reason to fear you. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, all right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Satan here is saying that Job is God's favorite, that that if you take away all the good things that God has given him, he's going to curse God. That, That basically, Job and his faith, well, they're frauds. And if Satan can expose Job and his faith as a fraud, he will expose God as a fraud. So Job's like a lab rat, It seems when you look at this story, but we got to remember, Job is handpicked by God, a speck of dust in human history, and God's going to pluck him into a struggle, and he's going to be like the original guardian of the galaxy fighting a a prince of darkness, and Job's going to be remembered for for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years as a man who struggles well. And that's important for us because here's another truth we're landing on today, and it's suffering well can have an eternal impact. Suffering well can have an eternal impact. There's an earthly impact and an eternal impact when we suffer well. If you're going through suffering, trust me, your kids are watching you. People around you are watching you. And if you're a man or woman of faith and you're walking with that, through that struggle with faith, When your kids and those watching around you go through their time of struggle because struggling is universal and we're all going to struggle, there's a ripple effect with the way they're going to struggle. Most likely, they will lean on your example, and that's what we see with Job. But there's also a negative to that. If you're going through a struggle doing the jam at Jesus, blaming God for, for your struggle, then guess what? I always argue that there's a ripple effect with that too. And if you got kids, for those of us who are parents, good chance when they go through their struggling, they'll do the same thing. There are consequences, a ripple effect. There's also a heavenly ripple effect that we're going to find out in this story of Job. So in the next handful of verses, what we're going to see is that all hell's going to break loose in Job's life. He's going to lose his fame and fortune, 7,000, he'll have 7,000 sheep die. 5,000 oxen, 3,000 camels, 500 donkeys, numerous servants. But then the worst happens to him. A, A huge gust of wind comes in and kills all 10 of his kids at once. Seven sons, three daughters. And then what we'd find in the next chapter, you can read it on your own, is he'd be covered with sores and have this horrific disease. He loses his health, he loses all this, yet in the 42 chapters in this book of Job, he never curses God. He never walks away from his faith. And is this fair? Is God just playing Job like a a lion plays with a mouse? I think it's so much more than that. So many times in life, we want to blame God for suffering, yet that blame is misplaced. I once heard a pastor once say these words. He said that God doesn't cause suffering, but he refuses to waste it. So let's talk about suffering. Let's talk about the cause of suffering because I think we need to go back to the Garden of Eden and to the Genesis, Genesis account of creation before we start blaming God and putting him on the hook for suffering, all suffering in the world. When God created the world, he created everything perfect and beautiful. In fact, when he created uh, the earth, he, he looked at, at everything he created and said, this is good. But then when he created us, man and woman, he said, hold the presses. This is more than good. This is very good. So he brings Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden. They have this incredible relationship with God. It's a relationship without barriers. It's a relationship based on love because God created them out of love by love and for love. He gives them the free will in the Garden of Eden to be disobedient or to love, because Jesus said, if you truly love me, you're gonna obey my command. So he says, don't go to that, that tree over there and eat from it. If you eat from the, tr- the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, that, you can't do that, just don't do that. See, God doesn't force his love upon them. He gives them free will. And it's another truth we'll land on today is that true love is not forced love. True love is not forced love. And so Satan enters the picture, and he tempts Adam and Eve, and they disobey God. And when they disobey God, they show a lack of love for God, and all evil enters the world. Now, because they've disobeyed, there has to be justice. There has to be some form of punishment. Look what happens. God says this to to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, verses 16 to 17. To Eve, he says, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And to the man, he said, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. And at that point, the whole earth begins decaying. Cancer, disease, sin, famine, war, all these things enter the universe. God didn't cause any of that. He created everything perfectly and everything good. He's never the author of evil. And so often we forget that when that happens, God already knew what they would do. He, already under, he knew that they would, they would do that, but he gave them the free will because he loves them. And he knew he would have to send his son to die to make everything right again. We want to blame God for suffering, but too often that blame is misplaced. So let's talk about some sources of suffering. I came up with four. You can probably come up with more, but uh, let's just look at these four that I came up with. Four causes of suffering. First one is cosmic forces. Cosmic forces, whether it's God testing your faith or Satan shaking your peace, there's a cosmic battle going on between God and Satan. Satan is the author of of suffering and not God. And as I said, too often we want to we blame God for the suffering that's going on when he's not to blame. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, I think it's verse 19, uh, the apostle John talks about how Satan temporarily holds the keys to this world, that Jesus defeated death, Jesus overcame all on the cross, but until he returns, we're still gonna face a world full of suffering. So we're in this cosmic battle whose rules we can't fully understand. Back to Job. In the story of Job, we see that God sets parameters to the behavior of Satan. What do I mean by that? Tim Keller said that that God only allows Satan to accomplish the opposite of what Satan wants to accomplish. When he tempts Job, Satan wants to expose Job as a fraud, but God uses Job, this tiny dot, this tiny speck in history to get into the arena to fight as an example on how to suffer well because what we do in suffering echoes into eternity. God hates suffering, yet he allows it only to the point to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in his overall good and perfect will. So does everything bad that happens go in front of God? Does, does any time something bad happens to us, is it Satan approaching God? I mean, you've got two, two examples in the Bible of that. You've got the story of Job. You've got Jesus. Right before he goes to the cross, he says to Peter, Peter, sucks to be you, man. Satan has asked to sift you, but I'm praying for you. I'm not going to deliver you from it. I'm going to walk with you through it. So there are two examples, but to to base an entire theology that God causes or God allows all suffering uh, uh, to where Satan approaches him on everything, I don't know if that's true. I believe completely in the sovereignty of God. And somehow our free will and his sovereignty, I don't get how that works, but he does. So let's talk about some other sources of suffering because there's the cosmic forces that are out there. What about the dumb decisions we make? Dumb decisions we make can cause suffering. The way we handle our finances, if we're mishandling our finances, we can put our families in a world of hurt, and we can't blame God for that. Or the way we treat our bodies, if we're living lifestyles that aren't healthy, and we can become sick or we can become injured doing something stupid, we can't blame God for that. What about our jobs? If we're consistently showing up to work late, or we're not doing those things to keep us competitive, to be good employers, can we really blame God? When we lose our job, we're in our relationships. If we cheat on our spouses and our family falls apart, how can we put God on the hook for that? Because we, we can make dumb decisions, and dumb decisions can cause pain and suffering in our lives. Yet we can also be doing things right, working hard, being good, honest people, and bad things will happen to us. So what about the dumb decisions other people make? because those things can cause a lot of pain in our lives. It's that drunk that gets behind the wheel and crashes into our minivan, kills half of our family. It's the the guy or gal texting and blows through a, a crosswalk and kills a pedestrian. Or it's a young man who's watching ISIS videos online and he becomes radicalized. He takes a flight down to Libya, learns how to make a bomb, and then he gets back on that flight, goes to the UK, and blows up a chunk of the arena in Manchester, killing a bunch of innocent people. The dumb decisions other people make can cause suffering and pain. We can't blame God for that. Or what about the fact that we just live in a fallen world? A fallen world. When everything happened in the Garden of Eden, evil entered the world, everything bad. As I said, cancer, disease, famine, war. Hurricanes and tsunamis wreak havoc. Tornadoes kill people. We attach suffering to God, when a lot of time it's simply the things that we do that have caused these things, yet there are some things we simply can't understand. We do know this, that since the fall of man, the earth has been groaning. Look at Romans 8, verses 22 to 23. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste a future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Have you ever noticed that we humans have a huge potential for evil? There's the Adolf Hitlers, the Saddam Husseins, the Kim Jong-uns, the the Charles Mansons, yet, yet we also have an incredible, incredible ability to love. The Mother Teresa's, the Martin Luther King's, the Pastor Bob Marvel's and Honey Boo Boo's, We have a great potential to love. That same free will that can cause so much suffering in the lives of others can redeem suffering in so many others. And love can hurt. People can reject us. Kids will rebel. Friends die, yet we still continue to love. And the same is true for God. As I said, he took great risk when he created us. And when he created us with that free will, we've got the the free will to love him or reject him to rebel against him or walk with him, yet he still continues to love us, especially through our suffering. The book of Isaiah says that God suffers when we suffer. And what we see is that God made a choice to suffer. He made a choice for him to suffer so suffering would have a definitive end. Go back to John three sixteen. It's the love verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. It's a love verse. But have you ever thought that it's an incredible suffering verse? A suffering verse for God? For God so loved the world that he crushed his one and only son. That he would have to sentence his innocent son to death to make everything right again because there has to be justice. And his son would pay that price for justice. To make the relationship right again. It's another truth we're going to land on today. It was God's choice to suffer so we would have an end to suffering. It was God's choice to suffer so we'd have an end to suffering. God, because of Jesus going to the cross, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, we now have an expiration date to suffering, and that's going to occur when Christ returns again. So what happens between now and then is that God uses suffering as a means to redeem his fallen world, and he uses us in the church to do that. If you look at the book of Revelation, if you look at the totality of the book of Revelation, Revelation is all about the flip. It's the flip of everything evil, everything bad that's ever happened. All the the suffering and ugly in the world is flipped, and there's great joy and peace because of God and it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus made simple for us. Bad things made good through Jesus who loves us. Bad things made good. All the horrific things that go on, all the suffering at some time will be made good. Sometimes on this side of eternity, forever guaranteed on the other side of eternity. All things made good through Jesus who loves us. So does that get God off the hook for suffering? Absolutely not. In fact, Tim Keller, who I drew greatly from for today's teaching in his book, Reason for God, he said these words, the Christian God came to earth to deliberately put himself on the hook of human suffering. Let's talk about that, 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter's writing a letter to, a, to the, the Christians in the Roman Empire, and they're going through horrific suffering. Here's what would happen. A, a group of Roman soldiers would come to a house where there are, it's a, a family of believers. They bring the, the whole family out. They put the kids on the ground. They put the, the sword to their heads, say, deny your faith or I kill your kids, and, and then uh, I'll, I'll kill you too. Or deny your faith, and I I keep your kids alive. If you say that you're going to remain a Christ follower, I will kill your kids, and I will kill you too. It's a rough time, to say the least. Here's what he writes to the Christians within the Roman Empire. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have a wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. Partners in Christ in suffering. Think about that phrase. Greg Boyd's another guy I drew on. He wrote a fantastic book called Letters from a Skeptic. He and his dad, his dad's a skeptic. And it's him talking his dad through tough questions like these. And he said these words. He said, God, when he became man, experienced the greatest depths of pain. He said that only God knows what it's like to be born in a crap-filled stable to befriend and defend the lowliest of society. That only God knows what it's like to sentence his innocent son to death for a cause or for a crime he did not commit. That only God knows what it's like to be a Jewish mom standing and watching her child slowly die in a a horrific crucifixion and knowing what that grief feels like. That only God knows what it's like to suffer firsthand what he calls the hellish depth of all that is nightmarish in the human existence. That only God in Jesus makes sense of the contradictory fact that the world is both extremely horrible and ugly, yet extremely, incredibly, and unimaginably beautiful at the same time. God knows what it's like to suffer more than we can understand. And God leads by example in this thing called suffering. He never asked us to suffer more than he did. And I'll just be honest with you guys. There is not a single piece of literature out there, including the Bible, that gives us the exact reason why God allows suffering in our lives. But here's the beauty about Jesus. You see, with Jesus, Christianity doesn't provide the exact reason for suffering, but it does provide the resources to face it. It provides the resources to face it with hope and with courage. It goes back to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the resource. At some time, God is going to flip it, He's going to do the flip to bring goodness out of all the suffering that has occurred. And until then, we need to suffer well. I've said it many times from this platform, but let me give you an example of of our life and eternity. We tend to hang on. I think what's going to happen, we're going to get to heaven, we're going to cross to this side of eternity, we're going to look over there at the other side and we're going to say, why did I hang on to that life? Why was I grasping that life so greatly when I have all of this now? You see, if you looked at eternity, let's say eternity was the size of the Pacific Ocean. Our life in comparison would be the size of an eyelash, an imperfect eyelash, and you pluck it in the center of the ocean and we hang on to that eyelash with everything we can because we don't understand everything else about eternity. we got promises of God, and he says, no, let go of the eyelash. Jesus gives us the resources to face eternity this side of eternity with hope as he reconciles suffering and the difficulties of life. Let's keep on going verse 19. Peter says so if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what's right, suffer well, and trust your lives to the God who created you for he will never fail you. So Jesus will never fail us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He'll redeem that suffering. Another source I use today is uh, Philip Yancey's Disappointment with God, an incredible book that focuses strictly on this question. And in his book, Disappointment with, with God, he tells a story of what he calls a modern day Job, a, a guy named Douglas. Now, Douglas is an academic guy. He's a psychiatrist running a thriving practice. Things are going well in his, his life when his wife gets breast cancer. And at that time, suffering begins entering into his world. On a really bad night when his wife was in distress, he gets her, puts her in the car. He gets his daughter, puts her in the car. They go out. They're driving down the road, and a drunk driver hits them. The dumb decisions other people make can cause suffering. Wife and daughter end up having minor injuries, but Douglas has a traumatic brain injury. Here's this psychiatrist, a brilliant man, who now where he would read three to four books a week. It takes him sometimes three hours to read a page in a book. He's getting, he has neurological issues. He's got balance issues. He's got double vision. And as he's walking in to be interviewed by Philip Yancey for this, this book, Disappointment with God, he gets a phone call. And it's from the doctor saying, I'm sorry, Douglas, but your wife's cancer is terminal. We can't do anything more for her. We need to talk hospice care and comfort care. So Philip Yancey, inside, he's going, this is perfect because I'm writing a book about disappointment with God. And he says to him, Douglas, tell me, tell me about your disappointment with God. Douglas's response surprised surprise Philip. I'm going to read his response because it's really good. Give me some grace on this. It's fairly long. He said, I've learned in my wife's illness and the accident not to confuse God with life. I'm grieved and angry about the accident, but I believe God feels the same way about it, grieved and angry. I've learned to see beyond the physical reality in this world to the spiritual reality. So there's that cosmic cause we're talking about, right? He continues, he said, we tend to think life should be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for a crashing disappointment. It's bad theology to think that if we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we do all those things that are good and right, that, that he is going to keep suffering from, from entering our lives. Go back to the, the, the disciples in the New Testament. Every single one of them died a horrific death, yet they loved Jesus and suffered with him. They were partners in Christ in suffering. But for me, it's logical. If I were going to create a God... I'd, do this, I'd say, okay, then if I, if I worship you, God, then nothing bad's going to happen to me. That's my logical, finite mind. But that's not how God works. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says that, that we can't understand an infinite, huge, holy God with our limited, finite minds. And a lot of people have a problem with that. I don't. Because if I could understand everything about, a big, about, about God with my finite mind, he'd go from being a, a big God to a very little God i got to have a God that I can't completely figure out because I need a big God to walk me through suffering when I go through my own shadow of death. So we look at suffering, and we say that God's the cause. We actually say that God's the enemy. But Have you ever thought about this, that God isn't the adversary, that Christ isn't the adversary, that Christ is the cure? Christ isn't the adversary. Christ is the cure for suffering. Douglas continues. He says these words. He says, God's existence, even his love for me, does not depend on my good health. Frankly, I've had more time and opportunity to work on my relationship with God during my impairment than before. And then he said something that rocked me when I was, when I was reading this. And this is going to be your challenge for the week. He said, I challenge you to go home and read again the story of Jesus. Read it out of the book of uh, of Mark. It's the shortest of the Gospels. He said, I challenge you to go home and read again the story of Jesus. Was life fair to him? For me, the cross demolished for all time the basic assumption that life will be fair. You see, it's through the cross that we get the deep resources to face suffering with hope and courage. It's through the cross in which God redeems suffering it's through the cross that jesus is crushed sent to hell comes back to life and then he's able to say i will never leave you or forsake you he will walk each one of us through the valley of the shadow of death and it's through the cross in which we in which we see suffering and that's it's through suffering that we become more like jesus which is god's goal in all of suffering And that may seem unfair. Here's the tough answer to today's question in the world according to Kip If God is so good, why does He allow suffering? To make us more like Jesus to make us more like Jesus, both individually and then collectively as a, as a body of Christ. God has put an end date to suffering through Jesus and the cross. He's chosen that time. We don't know when it is, but he does. But here's the deal, guys, and this, this just stinks to have to say it. It's so difficult to say it and even more difficult to live it out. We cannot have the character of God without suffering. We cannot get what Brennan Manning calls the wisdom of tenderness in our hearts without suffering. Years ago, I heard a pastor say this. I, I, I can't remember where I got it, but it was pretty solid when it comes to this thing called suffering. He said, if you were never broken, how would you know that Jesus can make you whole? If you never walked through fire, how would you become pure? If you never had pain, how would you know that Jesus is a healer? And then with that healing that you get, the comfort he gives you, he calls on you to comfort others with that wisdom of tenderness. If you never had to pray, how would you know that Jesus is a deliverer? And if you never had trouble, how would you know that Jesus could come to your rescue? If you never had to suffer, why would you need Jesus in the first place? It's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus. And when we look to the cross, we see a three-day pattern of suffering. We see tragedy, we see darkness, and then we see triumph. The tragedy of the cross where Jesus is placed on the cross, not placed but hammered to the cross, and he, he takes on all of the sin of mankind. He's separated from God the Father. The only time that will happen, he is crushed for our iniquity. And then God sends him to hell. He does, he, 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 the next day, the silent Saturday is the darkness There's fear, there's grief. The disciples believed in this Jesus, where is he now? But then Resurrection Sunday, there's triumph. And when he comes from the grave, we get to face suffering now with hope and courage because he puts an end date to suffering. And the same is true in our lives. Tragedy, darkness, and triumph. Tragedy, you get that phone call. Tragedy, you get that diagnosis. Tragedy, you get the information of something happening in your life to where your world is flipped. Darkness is that season, however long it may be, and it may be the entire time on this side of eternity. But then there's triumph, sometimes on this side of eternity, but always guaranteed because of the resurrection on the other side of eternity. So we face suffering with the cross in mind. We step into the the cosmic, cosmic arena to fight. We are God's exhibit A, In that cosmic battle. You may say, okay, Kip, I I can buy it on an individual side. But what about that kid right now in Sudan who's sitting in the dirt, bloated belly, flies all over him, starving because there's a huge famine going on in Sudan right now. And I agree, that's a good question. Did you ever think about this? Consider this. The body of Christ around the world. The body of Christ has enough resources right now to end all hunger and poverty. Did you ever realize that that just maybe with the fires going on around the world, God calls on his church to be that fire extinguisher? That maybe, just maybe, God, when we work together as a church and we suffer well, we become more like Jesus. It's the reason why I love Cornwall Church. Here our church is to alter the spiritual landscape one life at a time. That's our vision. We do that through Jesus. We do it a bunch of different ways. One of the ways is through our Go and Be ministry, where we go and be the hands and feet of Jesus outside these walls to do one thing and one thing only, alleviate suffering through Jesus. We become more like Jesus as a church when we do that. It's why every Easter we take this Easter offering. Ten years in a row we've taken an Easter offering and given it 100% back to the community. This year you gave $75,000. Not a penny of that's going to stay here at Cornwall Church because it's going to go back to local, regional, and international causes that alleviate suffering because we believe in our heart and soul that through suffering God is making us as a church more like Jesus. Back to Job. Back to Job in this concept of a cosmic showdown. You see, after finding out all the horrors of suffering, Job responds this way. Job 1, verses 20 to 22. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord's taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. With those word, words, Job does an eternal smackdown on Satan, yet he never knows that he's fighting Satan. Job never knows the reason why he's suffering, and I think that's the point of Job, is that we need to be able to suffer well and not know why. So back to Chaplain Kapan. One of the things I love about Captain Chaplain Father Emil Kapan is that he did things for others, emulating Jesus, for others who could do nothing for him, And so what would happen, he would die in prison of pneumonia, and 60 years later, the men would put together a a, a, a push for him to get the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's the the highest um, medal for valor that you can get in the military, and he'd get it obviously 60 years after he died. And so when you do a a Medal of Honor write-up, you have to get a whole bunch of, of different testimonies of what happened. And so when they went out to interview all these prisoners who were still alive, some of them couldn't even speak when they would talk about Captain Chaplin, Father Emil Capon, and what they did for him, how he selflessly gave his life daily, emulating Jesus. One would say he was Jesus incarnate, and because he did that for me, I could do that for others. You see, Chaplain Capon was God's exhibit A in this thing called suffering, and his Response had both an earthly ripple effect as well as an eternal ripple effect. Let me close with this verse. From the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul writes, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. It's a cosmic battle, and we are God's exhibit A when we suffer, when we suffer well, he uses that to become more like, for us to become more like Jesus individually and as a church, there is an end date, an expiration date to this thing called suffering and God's gonna end it. He did it through Jesus. Remember this, that what we do in suffering echoes into eternity. All right, Skagit, I love you guys. It was so cool hanging out with you last Tuesday at your year in celebration. Thanks for all you're doing. Boca Raton, we appreciate you being part of our church family down in Florida. For those of you watching us online, thank you so much for joining us.